Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC, the Chautauqua Institution, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Justin Glanville, a reporter and producer for IdeaStream. It's September 22nd, the fall equinox, and you're with a virtual City Club forum. And I'm very excited to have rung that bell in my house. That's very exciting. Um, all kinds of research has shown that access to the outdoors and green spaces helps build community and makes people happier. Parks and green spaces are also public forums for expressing our values and beliefs. As the coronavirus pandemic wears on and lots of indoor spaces remain off limits or closed altogether, outdoor public spaces are more important than ever. Along with that, we're facing questions of equity and fairness in our public spaces in new and bigger ways. How do we address the fact that people living without cars in the city of Cleveland may have to take as many as three buses to reach a metro park, or the fact that swings and basketball hoops in our city parks remain stored away, hidden from sight, even as suburban playgrounds have been completely reopened for months. As the country re-examines inequity and structural racism in the wake of the pandemic and the deaths of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and others at the hands of police, we're presented with an opportunity to rethink the way we create and run parks and public spaces to attract and serve all people. So we're gonna be tackling some of those questions and issues today with a really fantastic panel of local and national leaders. Joining me today are Mitchell J. Silver, Commissioner of the New York City Department of Parks and Recreation, Kimberly Smith Woodford, founder of Journey on Yonder, and Brian Zimmerman, who's the CEO of the Cleveland Metro Parks. And before we get started with our conversation, I also want to recognize Joe Byrne, who will be creating a visual summary of today's conversation on her magic poster board there. Um, so we're showing you Joe right now. Hi, Joe. And then we'll click over to see the results of her work at the end of the session. And while we're on, Joe, I also want to say that this is a part of a larger discussion that's been going on about the future of public, public spaces and parks. And if you want to get more involved in that discussion here in Cleveland, there's another event next week that I'll share more about at the end of this discussion. So Commissioner Silver, Kimberly, and Brian, welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. It's great to have you. Thank you. Thank, thank you. So Commissioner Silver, I'd like to, to start with you if I could. Uh, you visited the City Club in person, hard to believe right now, uh, back in February of 2019. And if I could start out with a personal, uh, how, how have your job, but also your life, changed since then? I mean, what does quarantining look like for the New York City Parks Commissioner? Well, uh, we were determined very early to be essential workers. And so I've been coming to work uh, since we had to shelter in place, as well as a lot of our essential employees. And so from the very beginning, uh, we had to very quickly ensure our parks were safe for employees and for our park users. And so believe it or not, between March and I believe July, I had probably about six days off. For my family, it was a struggle. They were concerned about me going to work every day. Uh, because I had to come home, there was a whole regimen I had to go through, how I basically had to sanitize myself before I entered uh, the apartment. Uh, but for staff, it was a challenge because uh, there was so much uncertainty, so much fear, uh, but then at the same time, there was such huge demand for our parks. I mean, think about it, everything, any social space was closed, bars, restaurants, malls. The only thing that was open were our parks. And so I called them our sanctuary of sanity because that's where people went to feel alive, not just for physical health, but their mental health. 
And so our goal and my challenge as Parks Commissioner to come to work every day and to make sure the public had a safe, beautiful space to come to and our staff felt safe during what was the beginning of the pandemic, even up till today. So uh, it's been tiring, it's a challenge. We had to close everything and then we had to turn around and start opening a lot of our elements. So uh, it has been exhausting. And then of course we had the whole uh, Black Lives Matter uh, evolved during that time. So I have to say um, it has been a bit of a challenge for all of us here at the Parks Department and a lot of New Yorkers. And you were just saying, you know, as we were getting ready for this call that you got your 45 minute walk in in Central Park right before we started talking. What, what were you seeing out there? Um, since we can't be in New York ourselves right now, what's, describe the scene for us. Well, in New York City, mostly all of our parks are open. The only thing that's closed are indoor facilities. So playgrounds, basketball parks are open. And people are out there exercising, walking. Uh, I'd have to say 90% of the people are wearing face coverings. So that's a good thing. But we also opened up our parks for outdoor learning. So today on my walk, I saw a lot of classes from high school to middle school out there, mostly for, I would say, physical exercise that they're out there in our parks. So I just saw it all, uh, people with strollers, uh, people in wheelchairs, uh, all ages walking, kids playing, running, biking, on uh, skateboards. So Central Park is very, very active, but people are out there just enjoying the beautiful weather. And, and how does that contrast with the beginning of the pandemic? I mean, at the beginning of the pandemic, New York was obviously an epicenter. Um, were people avoiding being out in public at first and then they gradually got back to being willing to do that? Uh, they were very hesitant coming out at first. At the beginning, we only allowed solo exercise. If you were with someone in your family, that was fine. But basically, we didn't want to really see groups of people at all in the park. I think we limited up to three or four people. So we encouraged solo exercise. I was out there both on the news and uh, leading by example about wearing a face covering. I'm a runner. So we had to really instruct our runners and bikers to wear a face covering as they huff and puff past people. But you're absolutely right. Initially, we did not see a lot of people coming out. It was March. The weather wasn't cold, but it wasn't warm. Uh, but we had to have a social distance ambassadors. We came up with this beautiful sign that physically showed you what six feet apart looked like. And so uh, there was some apprehension. Should I wear a mask? Should I not wear a mask? There was such unclear information at the very beginning that people just preferred to stay inside. And then April, they started coming out. And what have you noticed in terms of the way people are using parks and public spaces at this point? Has that evolved uh -huh. or changed at all? It has evolved. Uh, we now allow events up to 50 people, but since there's so, pen so much pent up demand for activities, that people are now having unpermitted events. We had one in Prospect Park for well over 3,000 people. The other part of the end of the park, there was one for 1,000 people. Uh, and these were not permitted events, but we now have people doing physical exercise, holding classes, uh, because everything's closed, birthday parties, weddings, family events, everyone's going to the park because it's the only thing that is open at this point. We will be opening up our restaurants for 25% capacity end of the month, but up until this point, people were using the parks for literally everything. And so you saw it throughout the summer, uh, and it continues to this very day. So I got a chance to listen back to, you know, your presentation last year at uh, the City Club. And, you know, last year, again, this was February of 2019, equity was already at the top of your list of, I think your slide was called What's Next for, for New York City Parks. And I liked that you defined equity more in, in sort of everyday terms as meaning fairness. Um, for example, you said one of the things that you were doing is, is looking at where money was going across the city okay. and, and which parks money was going to and which parks money was not going to. Um, and trying to make sure that the parks that weren't getting investment were, you know, starting to get more. So how has, and that was just one example of what you were doing, but, but how has your thinking on equity and fairness in parks evolved or changed in the light of the coronavirus pandemic and also Black Lives Matter? Right. Well, for one, uh, pursuing an equity agenda was certainly the right thing to do. Um, here in New York City, we looked at a data-driven approach to find out how we invested in our parks over 20 years. 
New York City invested over $6 billion in our parks over 20 years, yet we found out about 215 parks so little to no investment, and we thought that was not fair. To me, equity means fairness. I don't like long definitions. It means fairness. And so we felt that was not fair, that communities that needed access to quality space, and these tended to be black and brown communities, and the mayor said it wasn't fair, I said it wasn't fair, and so we set out to fix it. COVID actually highlighted that many black and brown communities are affected by COVID the most, yet the, we did not see the same access to quality space for people to go out to be healthy, either physically or mentally. And so the COVID actually exposed more of the inequity in our park system, and so we had to close playgrounds. Most of our passive parks were open at the height of COVID, and so we sought to open up streets and other public spaces so that everybody had access to walk, just to stroll and to get out and get some exercise. So COVID has exposed, not just here in New York, but across the United States, that brown and black communities and those that are underserved uh, do not have the same access to passive public space where people can go out, enjoy, connect, and get healthy. Can you give us an example or two of how you've tried to reinvest in, in spaces that um, maybe do serve black and brown people or are in black and brown neighborhoods to make those spaces more accessible or inviting? Well, first is a community parks initiative, as I mentioned. This is an initiative uh, that we wanted to address those parks that have been neglected. Uh, the mayor uh, basically funded 300, over 300 million to transform 67 of these 215 parks I mentioned that have been neglected for 20 years. And it has been transformative. It's not just a light touch change, it was actually scraping it down to the dirt and rebuilding an entirely new park. We're now seeing that more than 50% increase in usership compared to other parks in the city, so we're noticing that this is making a big difference. And the testimonies are just so powerful, and I could share with you a story at the end. The other one we're doing is called Parks Without Borders. Uh, this is an effort to make a more seamless public realm. We're looking at the fences and the gates and the obstacles around a lot of our public spaces. We don't want to imprison our parks. We understand there are certain parks that need fences for safety or for certain sports, but for the most part, this came in an era of the 1970s and 80s where we just were fearful and felt that we had to cage in our public spaces, and we wanted to change that. So we want to make sure parks are more accessible, more seamless. We're either removing those barriers or lowering those fences, putting more entrances into our parks so people don't have to walk that far to get into a public space. And now with Black Lives Matter, we're taking a look at how we named our parks. Uh, one in particular, our staff came up with a concept where we actually created Juneteenth Grove. And this is now a space for reflection, for protest, uh, and we planted 19 trees, both the roots going down to our ancestors and the branches going up to those, unfortunately, that had died. And so we're trying to make sure that our spaces are inclusive for all, and I mean inclusive for all, and we really mean for all. And this is an effort that's really transforming a public space. We want to make sure our parks, which are democratic public spaces, we want to feel that way, not a name only. We don't want to just talk the talk of equity. We want to walk the walk and show it on how we transform our park system here in New York. And then last question for you before I, I turn to our other panelists here. You, I think you kind of opened your talk last year by saying you are the department of fun. And um, 2020 correct. has been a heavy year in a lot of ways. I'm wondering if you still regard yourself yeah. as the department of fun. Yeah, we call ourselves the department of fun, health and happiness. And I believe every city, every city needs to have a department of fun. And so here in New York City, it's parks. Believe it or not, during COVID, I mean, it was a very dark period when you saw tents going up in Central Park because we had an overflow of hospital space that it really hit home that this is real, this is serious. But our staff sat down, understanding with the Department of Fun and Health and Happiness, and we came up with this idea of calling Parks at Home. And so we went out there, did walking tours, did exercises, and so throughout the entire pandemic, we still continue to find ways of being that department of fun. And I have to say, the Parks at Home was very, very successful. They were short or long videos, people were able to still connect to their parks, and so we found our way uh, of still having fun in our parks, and so thank you for that, and I still believe every city, every city, including Cleveland, needs to have a department of fun. I love it, I love it.
Um, okay, so uh, let me move on now to Kimberly Smith Woodford, if I could. Um, so Kim, you and I, if I could share a little personal story here, you and I first met or at least hung out together, you know, at any length of time during a volunteer naturalist training last summer at the Cuyahoga Valley National Park. Um, and we got to bond over like digging up bugs from a pond and trying to like identify tree species, which I'm still terrible at. I don't know if you feel like you're any good at that. Um, and that's where I first learned about your work here in Cleveland on parks and equity. So I'm wondering if you could share with, with our listeners a little more about Journey on Yonder and how you got to Journey on Yonder and what's kind of been happening um, in, this, in this year, 2020, with, with your organization. Sure. And by the way, I'm still working on learning to identify my trees. I have a little <laughs> cheat sheet. <laughs> but uh, with Journey on Yonder, that came about a couple of years ago when actually I was uh, doing work for another organization, uh, Outdoor Afro, which is a national organization aimed at getting, shifting the narrative of who uh, celebrates in nature. And so I was responsible for creating events in the outdoor, in the outdoors, be it public parks, uh, local parks, national parks. And so uh, from there, four years of that, I moved into my own goal here with Journey on Yonder, which still pretty much the same concept. But I realized that uh, with Journey on Yonder, I get an opportunity to collaborate more in this space with other organizations, community organizations, other boots on the ground organizations and environmental uh, uh, professionals uh, and organizations to further this work in uh, more of the, again, the, the giving out the visitorship, or should I say, we partake within that green space. So, and I realized that um, during this time, uh, many people responded to me when asked why they uh came out was because, you know, because I never knew that there were other people who looked like me who enjoyed this space because I never saw any uh, folk of color for the most part out in uh, parks uh, deep in the woods. And and also it was the, the, the fact of just needing to uh, enjoy that space for that physical and that mental wellness because we and I hear it time and time again from uh, – African-Americans, and let me be more specific with Journey on Yonder. My goal is to get African-Americans and people, of, black and people of color uh, out into nature. And so I would hear a lot of the uh, stories of, you know, I really needed to get out because, you know, I'm dealing with uh, the stress of just living as a black person from day to day. And this is wonderful. I've always wanted to, get to go out in nature, just didn't know how to do it so glad you, you know, created this space. So uh, that's what I do. And I've been doing this and, and working with um, some of the local community organizations and the National Park Service and the Conservancy for the National Park Service, as well in um, uh, uh, having events or, or getting folks out there into the park and working with their staff and um in the area of diversity and inclusion. And so what, has, what happened after COVID? Um, I have to say for myself, you know, I, I, I kind of got within the COVID space. There was so many different stories. And, of course, we were terrified initially about going outdoors. And um, I'd say maybe in April, uh, me and uh, some friends uh, ventured out into the national park, and we couldn't believe just how many people were out there uh, because at that point people were cooped up and they needed to get out. But still, there was, you know, that lack of, of, of black and brown faces in the park were not as great as I would have liked to have seen. So we moved forward um, further into COVID and the George Floyd incident that, you know, really shook us all, right? And in doing 
in in that whole uh, really dark space, we couldn't necessarily get out like we wanted to, but it was needed. So I I had um, made a point to 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 do. I felt it was needed to do a restorative hike. I figured, you know, the black community was hurting with um, with the COVID, where you know, at least thirty percent of the or twenty five or twenty three percent of the population was suffering from death uh, in the black community of the black population, where we make up just you know thirteen percent of the population. Again, twenty three percent were were dying of COVID, and of course, uh, Commissioner Silvers, uh, being in that epicenter, can attest to that. So when we finally um, made our way out, I made it a point to um, make this restorative hike uh, in a space where uh, of the two metro parks, I would say, I I knew where more uh, blacks frequented. So one of the parks we we chose to go to in, in that space where, again, they Everyone expressed how much they needed that, that mental. They needed to get out in that, in that space for mental health. So we had that journey. We journeyed through the park, came back, you know, uh, and, 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 and reflected on that. So it just reaffirms to me how this space is needed for people of color simply because we, were, we existed in just trauma on a daily and and so in terms of the uh, equity of it, being in this space, you know, when I first started, it was like going down Euclid Creek at one point. I had never seen so many black folk, you know, celebrating in nature in many different ways and walking on the towpath, playing in the, on the playground, the, the basketball courts, grilling with family. Uh, and, and I was just amazed. Now, mind you, I grew up in a space, not in Cleveland, where we did, we went out into nature in open fields, park fields, meadows. Uh, we played a lot in our backyard and in the streets. So to come into Cleveland and see this park with all these beautiful black people was just, it just, it just did me so good. And that was, that was just actually one of my parks. Uh, Euclid Creek has become one of my favorite parks. But as and, I and journeyed through, go ahead. Oh, I, I, sorry. Finish your thought. I didn't mean to interrupt you there. But as, but as I continue within this in this space of, of creating a space, safe space for folk to get out and celebrate in nature, I noticed. I began to notice uh, the need for more equity here. You know, be it with. Uh, uh, some of the amenities like nature centers, uh, opportunities to learn more about park space, understanding that uh, black folk in America were stripped of that, of their lineage and that connection to uh, outdoor space. So, yeah, and, and Kim, you, you've talked uh, about the importance for black people of feeling safe in, in parks and outdoor um, spaces. And you shared with me a few stories that touch on, you know, safety, not just in terms of physical safety, but I think emotional safety too, of, you know, how do we make sure that um, people of color, especially black people feel safe in, in public spaces and parks. Would you be willing to share one of those stories with us from your own personal experience? Because I think for a lot of us white folks, you know, we're, we're surprised to hear that black people might, you know, regard parks as unsafe. Oh, yes. Well, you know, we're, we're not monolithic, again, in how we celebrate nature. You know, we like to, to hike, backpack, kayak, uh, hike, ski, you know, celebrate in all sorts of ways. But, uh, and I've heard, uh, it's been told to me, the, the perceptions of folk, uh, people of black folks, uh, in being profiled at cert- in certain spaces and parks, which you know, makes them apprehensive to, to and, and flat out refuse to go into the woods. But during um, this story that I shared, uh, while we were going through the 
certified volunteer naturalist program, that the particular topic that day was on fungus and mushrooms and the different mushrooms that you have uh, throughout, uh, you know, green space. And during that time, I had to step out. But coming back in, the instructor was at one point speaking of mushrooms, and it's not like a, you know, he made a comment and comment and saying that it's not like the hallucinogenic type or the kind you'll find, you know, that someone might sell down on MLK. And I thought that was a little disturbing because why would you say out of all, you know, streets in America, MLK? Uh, and just, just to, for, for folks who don't know, MLK runs through the Glenville neighborhood, which is a predominantly black neighborhood in Cleveland. Yes, so I find that I found that to be a little disturbing, and 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 that microaggression uh, that was made there. He he, uh, you know, that was disturbing, and that's what that's sort of those. You know, he pushed that narrative of you know blacks and drug dealers, and 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 that's that's not always true. So um, those are things that you face, and me being the only black person within that cohort you know he said that <laughs> so that yeah. was pretty uh disturbing yeah okay but thanks for it's for... one of those scenarios that that many my story isn't special it's something that many blacks face on a regular okay brian zimmerman um you know we got a, a chance to catch up a bit before this panel and you we're telling me some really striking figures about usership in the Cleveland Metro Parks. Um, and, and I wanted to ask you about that and then move on to your, your views on equity. But you, you mentioned that in 2020, the Metro Parks have been seeing in some cases an increase of 100% in park usage in some of the reservations. And you said that a big part of that increase has been new users to the parks. So, I'm curious, what are you hearing from the, those new users in terms of why they're seeking out parks, but how are you also seeing people use parks now? Well, I think to, you know, Mitchell's point, he, he made a very um, salient point in, you know, almost everything was closed. And for the folks that, you know, knew about not only the Cleveland Metro Parks, more than 24,000 acres, but, you know, there's more than 1,895 acres in the city of Cleveland, People were looking for an outlet to get out of the house, to get out of their four walls, and to see, you know, the the usage increase in many different ways, whether it was families. I've seen more families walking together of, of all different backgrounds in the parks, whether it be at Garfield, Millstream, Bedford, um, whether it be in Rocky River. And, and that's been a positive. I've seen a rebirth in rollerblades, um, cycling. Um, we've seen a tremendous amount of increased activities, which is, is really nice to see. Bird watching is, is, again, one of the prime things. People just needed an outlet to get out um, out of their house, and the parks are serving that in, in its highest capacity. Golf is having a near-record year across our eight golf facilities that we never closed. And like Mitchell said, our teams were deemed essential. Uh, we were open through the entire part of this. We are working with uh, 650 people that have been on furlough. We had to lay off 200 plus people. We hired a thousand less seasonals. So we had to go through this with a lot less people um, to really make things happen and, and provide a high quality uh, part of green space. Brian, um, could you please unmute your, your video um, screen? Because uh, I think folks are not, we're hearing you on the audio, but not on the video feed. Um, so while Brian uh, works on unmuting himself there, um, I think you're still on mute, Brian. Um, let me- I can um, see myself. Yes, we can see you, but we can't hear you. Um, let, me, let me turn back to, oh, there we go. Hey, Brian. Okay, I think now you're off mute on video too. So um, Brian was just talking about, you know, usership increasing in the metro parks dramatically um, and people just needing to get out. Um, people are bird watching. It seems like bird watching is super trendy right now. I hear about that a lot too. And rollerblading too, lots of rollerbladers. Um, 
But Brian, how are you thinking about equity right now? You talked um, to me about a conversation you had a while back with Brad Sellers, who's the mayor of Warrensville Heights, that you said has, was really a, an awakening for you. I think that was even before the pandemic. But can you describe that conversation and just kind of your thinking right now? Well, I think for for those of you that didn't hear the first part of it, you know, we really talked about how the 24,000 acres are being used and utilized across not only uh, Cleveland, um, but all of the surrounding counties with more than 70,000 acres worth of green space. Um, we've really seen an uptick across all areas. Um, you know, when we talk about the opportunity, you know, it's interesting in the city of Cleveland proper, you know, most people are within a half a mile or a, to a mile of green space with the city of Cleveland having 1,895 plus acres. They've got 168 parks. We have 24,000 acres that surround Cuyahoga County. You know, it's really something that provides a lot of opportunities for people to recreate. The conversation directed with Mayor Sellers and former city councilman, Councilman Terrell Pruitt was really about creating more opportunity in a city of Cleveland Park um, off of Interstate 480 in Karush Park. We were talking about adding some mountain bike trails. We were engaging the community. Um, this was not a Cleveland Metro Parks project. This was something the councilman wanted. Um, we were working with the mayor of Warrensville Heights, and we got a bunch of focus groups together, and, and the conversation talked about directly um, and it was a group of African-American folks that really talked about, you know, bad things happen in the woods. And um, that, to me, was, was really something that, you know, we have taken to heart. Um, one of the things that we've been trying to do is increase access. That's one of the ways that Cleveland Metro Parks has really been pushing forward. The Tiger Trails going into downtown, um, you know, when we talk about access within a mile buffer, more than 66,000 residents will have access. Mm -hmm. Um, the Lakeview Estates did not have access to the lakefront. They're now getting access. Um, so there is a tremendous amount of investment in work. Uh, Mitchell also talked about, you know, the investment. Cleveland Metro Parks and its partners have put over $20 million into the city of Cleveland and city of Cleveland Parks. We've also put almost $35 million into our zoo, um, which we have free Mondays um, that have been a very consistent thing. So really providing that ability for people to get out and have access to green space. What's the, what's the one thing that you would do to really invite people of color more into spaces? Um, so, you, you know, you're talking a lot about um, adding new spaces, which I think is great. But what about inviting people into the spaces in new ways? You know, I think it's I can point back to a, a program that's actually been going on since late 1999, 2000, Youth Outdoors. We've seen more than 15,000 uh, young uh, people go through our Youth Outdoors program, which is partnered with Ohio State 4-H, which is Head, Heart, Hands, and Health, Cleveland Metro Parks, the city of Cleveland. We've served more than 23 different um, cities uh, centers. And, and that is, you know, an opportunity to help with the, the generational gap of not being users of the parks. So we now have 15,000 more youth that, you know, are now, if you think of that's almost 20 years, if they were 15 when they came in, they're now 35. And so we're trying to change the narrative about how people can come and use the parks. Work like Kim is doing at, at um, Garfield Park and um, a host of others are, are trying to, you know, add, um, you know, opportunities for people to, to see themselves in the park in, in a very natural way. It's, it's such a great equalizer. You know, the trees and, and the forest and fauna do not know socioeconomic background. They don't know religion. They don't know political views. They don't judge. Uh, but they are there really for all. And that's the way this park district was envisioned more than 104 years ago. And we continue to partner with other communities across the area. We've also added, in my tenure, 635 acres of parkland in the city of Cleveland. Yeah. All right, great. So it, we are about halfway. It always amazes me uh, how quickly time goes by here. We're at about halfway through. So that means that um, we're going to get ready to move into our question and answer period. For those of you listening and watching online, um, please feel free to type your questions into the chat, or if you um, you would also you can also text them to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. You can also tweet if you're a tweeter um, to at the city club um, at the city club and we'll work those questions in. Um, but I have had a couple of questions roll in here on my uh, cell phone already. 
So um, let me turn right now to those. The first one comes from Tanya Jones. She says, I have two questions regarding park spaces. How welcoming are parks to everyone? Oftentimes they feel less welcoming to people of color. Also, how does having green space work for our health? So we kind of touched on that a little bit with that last question to CEO Zimmerman um, about, uh, you know, how do we invite people into spaces? Um, it's maybe not enough just for the spaces to exist. We need to think about ways that we're inviting people in. Does anyone else want to uh, touch on that? Maybe Commissioner Silver or uh, yeah. Kim? Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, in terms, let me do the last part first. Uh, there have been so many studies the past couple of years about the connection of being out in green space for just 20 minutes. In fact, doctors are now prescribing a walk in a park as a way for not just physical health, but mental health. Number one, being out in the sun and air uh, replenishes vitamin D. Uh, and going on a walk, because if you're in a park and if you're walking, also helps your cardiovascular system. So there's so many benefits about being outdoors in green space. And just being in a green space actually reduces stress, reduces anxiety. And so that's why I take a walk in a park every day just to reset my day. The first part of question, Tanya, you're absolutely right. Uh, we keep saying parks are welcome for all, but that's not necessarily the case. There was a question about how do we make uh, people of color feel welcome. We have to first ask them. Uh, there was this famous study of a greenway that was developed and people said it's accessible to everyone. They polled the white uh, affluent residents. They said this is great, this is equitable. People of color now have access to the greenway. But when they interviewed the black and brown communities, they said we don't want a greenway. Just fix our bathrooms. Make sure our picnic areas are welcoming. And then there are some places that want basketball. No, 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 not basketball. That, that will attract the wrong element. So I think we have to ask the type of amenities that attract people of color. I, for one, am a runner. I'm very uncomfortable on greenways unless I run with a group because I don't want to be that isolated as a black man, not knowing what would happen. So I think we just have to really have an honest conversation about how I feel welcome in a public space. Even the food that you offer is one that that's not my food palate. Uh, I have a different you know, comfort food for people of color that but there's no concession in a park that offers that food. Does it have places for eating and picnicking? So to me, to make sure a place is welcoming, you have to talk about those amenities. And as Kim said, it's a challenge to get out there for greenways and green space because some people of color do not feel comfortable unless they're in large gatherings in an open space where they can come together with friends over food to have a good, a good time and play sports. So we have to ask the user, but there are things you can do. Far too often we talk about having inclusive parks but in fact, the way we design them, they're actually exclusive by the way they're designed, the amenities they have, or just how the canopy makes it feel that it's very isolated. Yeah, Kim, did you want to add to that at all? I would, I would. Yes, and, and I appreciate what you said, Commissioner Silver, uh, in that, you know, we get out there and we celebrate in nature. And, and to go back to... Uh, a, a comment, I think Brian said the, that, you know, our trees don't know what color you are or your social economic background. However, um, I feel that it is, a, it is the responsibility of many of the organizations, these park organizations, to be intentional about creating um, a voice for everyone at, in, within their organization, first having a more diverse organization, and that starts from the top up. And if uh, I say, you know, I got you have Commissioner Silver in New York, he's, he's, he's you know, I think the buck stops with you, uh, but we have commissioners here in one of our, in our metro parks. And I think that, you know, creating um, diversity from that, that level, that high level down through the organization so that, that you can bring in the, those voices that know the community, who know, can speak to, you know, although, they, although we need to be very careful not to tokenize, but to hear what they're saying, um, the, the black and brown folks within the organization, and creating the, perhaps the programming, um, the volunteers, uh, the 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 donor sources, for that matter, and, and things that, and, and creating, uh, having a say in helping their colleagues to understand 
what might be happening? Why why you think black folks aren't coming out in the uh, in, in, into the space like you thought they would? Or why uh, you know black folks don't want to go uh, or are hesitant to go into the woods because they can't celebrate uh, you know a moment of looking, uh, of viewing and enjoying the uh, lakefront without fear of being you know questioned by the police for doing nothing but only enjoying the lakefront so um i think there's 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 work to be done within these organizations and and as far as uh you know in in in, in helping to understand what black black and brown people want while they enjoy nature so Great. And, and uh, Brian, and you'll have to unmute yourself uh, here before you, you answer this one. Um, we also got a question. What does Metro Park usership currently look like? What are the demographics? Um, the increase in total users is great, but are folks still left out? And the, this um, questioner also wanted to know what happened to the Karush Park project? Well, I can answer the last part first. The, co the councilman at the time changed and the project essentially died. It was uh, designed to put um, hiking trails, uh, mountain biking trails, shared use trails um, in an area that had not seen, you know, that type of improvement before. Um, again, this was a city of Cleveland driven initiative, um, as well as Warrensville Heights. And it, 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 it kind of um, died, died off. You know, as far as demographics go, you know, Cleveland Metro Parks, again, has 24,000 acres. And I just want to be, you know, very, very transparent here. You know, we are not the only provider of green space here in, you know, Cuyahoga County. There is 60 municipalities. Again, the city of Cleveland alone has 168 parks, 1,895 acres. Cleveland Metro Parks has um, just shy of 1,600 acres in the city of Cleveland. And so there is a tremendous amount of um, entities providing, you know, green space in diverse communities. Most recently, Cleveland Metro Parks just picked up a parcel of land, Dunham Park, in the city of Maple Heights, um, an underserved community, a community that had not been served by the Metro Parks before. Um, and so we've seen some very nice increases across the board there. Uh, you know, parks are really across the board. Um, when you look at Edgewater Park, um, as an example, you know, the amount of diversity has increased, um, you know, in so many different ways between uh, 2013 and 2020, with Cleveland Metro Parks taking over, um, having the concert series not only there, Edgewater Live, but Euclid Beach Live, uh, being able to handle those um, types of different um, activities in two different uh, types of parks. We have really worked to increase, um, you know, the numbers across across the areas. Okay. Um, yeah, you know, I, I live right by Edgewater Park, and I can definitely attest to just the explosion in overall usage. I mean, <laughs> there actually have been times when I've, I haven't necessarily felt safe going down there just because it seems so crowded, and I know you've had to close it a couple of times uh, during the pandemic. Yes, we actually we worked with the city of Cleveland. Um, they basically said, if you don't do something about the mass crowds, we will shut you down. And, you know, that created some challenges in the neighborhoods as well. Um, we have worked very hard. Our west side trails are a lot more connected. You know, one of the interesting trail connections that we're working on is the Slavic Village Trail Connector. It, it hits 71 percent of low income population, 22 percent with less than a high school education, 54 percent black or African-American and 5 percent Hispanic. So we are working at trying to create more trail opportunities. That would then connect to Washington Park Reservation, our golf learning facility. It then connects back to Ohio and Erie Canal. And then what does it connect to? It connects to the towpath that takes us all the way through downtown into the city of Cleveland and then to arguably our greatest asset, Lake Erie. Okay, great. And a question, let me, let me just give you um, folks the, the phone number again in case they want to text us questions. It's 330-541. 5794. That's 330-541-5794. Um, we, we had a question come in too, and maybe I'll toss this first to Commissioner Silver, about policing in parks. Um, what, what's a, you know, how do we deal with policing in parks? We want people to feel welcome. Um, police have certain uh, connotations or associations among certain folks, especially black folks. How do we handle policing in parks? Well, in New York City, we have our New York NYPD, and we also have our Parks Enforcement Patrol. 
So we have roughly about 300 park police, so to speak, that work directly for me for the Parks Department. Uh, our goal is to educate first and then enforce. So education is what our park police are asked to do. They enforce our quality of life rules. And so if it is needed, we will call upon the police if there's an incident that escalates that needs their attention. But our park police also can arrest. They do have that ability. So throughout the pandemic, we are very careful that in all neighborhoods, all neighborhoods, regardless of race, that we educate the public. And it became very apparent when the public was complaining that for social distancing, for example, that they felt that the police were approaching communities of color, asking them or questioning them or stopping them for not wearing face coverings, but the same was not, ha it was not happening in white communities. We made sure we communicated with the police department to make sure our goal is to enforce the park rules. If anyone is breaking the law, then the police need to initiate it. But we are working very closely with community groups, uh, Stop the Violence and others that are educating the police on how to make sure, and this is where equity comes in, that they treat all residents, regardless of race, the same in our parks. And so we're seeing that getting better and better as each day pass by. The mayor instituted neighborhood policing to get to know uh, the residents better in their community, and we are seeing a change here in New York City. But the question earlier, remember Christian Cooper, the birder, who approached a woman in Central Park about having her dog off leash. You know, this was an incident that could have escalated when she was on the phone falsifying exactly how threatened she felt by this black individual. And so luckily the police never arrived when they did. Everything did just down escalate. That was the same day George Floyd was murdered. So the whole Christian Cooper incident about blacks being in public space really went into, got national attention. And so for us, it's just educating, educating, educating. We enforce, I'm sorry, we educate before we enforce, and that's working for both the police as well as our park police. Kim or Brian, would either of you like to weigh in on that question? Policing in parks. Yeah, Kim. Yeah, I'd like to say uh, also, um, just to follow up on what Brian said, I, yeah, I realized that we have uh, a vast amount of park systems here, the city, the metro parks, the national park, our state parks. And, but to go back to, to a point as far as safety, I can say that I've not, although I have wanted to, I haven't done any uh, type of events within our local parks because I do get a lot of feedback that they, that our city parks, that they just don't feel safe in those spaces. Maybe there's one park, uh, Woodhill Park, where there is a number of people that uh, visit that in the summertime, a very popular park. But as far as the other city parks, I'm not as familiar with, but I know that I don't, I have not done anything uh, in those spaces because of safety concerns. I would love to do more things in those in those spaces because, and, and I would hope that they that that the powers that be would look at more opportunities for land acquisition. I know of uh, uh, Trust for Public Land and their initiative to create uh, parks within a ten minute walk for everyone. Uh, if we could go deeper into those uh, uh, communities where there is a uh, little green space, maybe reimagine what you can do with those vacant lots and, um, and, and turning those into uh, community uh, spaces where the neighborhood can convene and, and enjoy that space. We may not be, because they may not have that, that means to travel uh, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, to, um, to another uh, metro park or one of the other popular local parks, let alone the national parks. So I think I, I would love to also see um, our city park officials uh, begin to do more in listening uh, to the residents and looking to see how they can reimagine those spaces and, and then do it. Mm hmm mm hmm yeah, well, and, and, you know, there's also a question here. How do we protect black and brown communities from displacement as park renovation may destabilize housing markets and rent as the cost of housing increases? So I think that's a question about, you know, hey, we, you know, we make parks uh, 
to be nice and to serve uh, people. And when we do that, it's great, but sometimes it has this sort of unintended effect of raising property values to the point, surrounding property values to the point where some people who maybe once lived in that neighborhood can no longer afford it. Um, again, I live right by Edgewater Park. It's an amazing park. I'm sh always shocked by just the, the housing prices in my neighborhood. Uh, they've been skyrocketing. Um, so does anyone want to take that? Um, maybe we start with, I don't know if you've faced right. that Commissioner Silver in New York. Well, we've heard it. I did want to make a very quick point, and then I'll get back to your question. Uh, about people of color in parks, I've always noticed when I see a white couple sitting at a park bench, people said, how lovely, how beautiful. But the minute I see five teenagers on the same park bench, the term loitering comes up, where people feel unsafe. I can see five teenagers, white teenagers walking, bouncing a basketball, everything's cool. I see five black teenagers bouncing a basketball through a park, all of a sudden everyone tenses up. They're, if they're hanging out, they're loitering, but if you're white, you're just enjoying the park. So I think we have to be careful the word we use, and I told my staff, take the word loitering out of your vocabulary because it, it's, if you don't like who's there, they're loitering. If you do like who's there, then they're just normal park users. The point about gentrification, we hear that often. Other than a high line or high profile real estate locations, we haven't seen park improvements lead to gentrification. Here's the dilemma. We have parks that hadn't seen investment for over two decades. These are horrible places I would not let my child or grandchild step foot in that public space. They deserve a world-class public space that they can enjoy, connect, get healthy. And what I'm hearing is that, well, don't improve it because it could lead to gentrification. Like I said, I have not found that to be the case, but what you're really saying is, we're now gonna deny these children, these young adults, these seniors, another 20 or 30 years of an inferior public space because a few people fear that gentrification may be the case. Under my leadership, I'm saying I'm sorry, I have to provide quality public space. Let us work on the other issues about how we can address gentrification, but don't hold this park hostage because it is the town common, the community commons for this community where people need to grow, thrive, and get healthy. And so that's what we've dealt here in New York. We went ahead and renovated 700 capital projects that I, since I've been here, and I have not seen those projects lead to gentrification, unless it's a high line or a park located in a very, very high profile or in a very upscale uh, location. What makes the high line different, Commissioner? Why, why did that Because there was be nothing, there was nothing around it. I mean, basically it was, well, it was a meatpacking district. Uh, it was underutilized land, and when that investment went in, of about, uh, I think roughly about $200 uh, million and generated $3 billion in real estate value. Uh, there was public housing nearby and there was some uh, middle class housing and so there was intense pressure that as the High Line was developed, you had all these architects that wanted to put a building next to it, increased value and then this tension between the High Line, the high value real estate and the public housing, that whole section of Chelsea started to transform. But basically there wasn't much there, it was just an industrial abandoned railroad that was transformed into this amazing vertical park that just set off a chain reaction where land values, meatpacking industrial was transformed overnight and then had a ripple effect in the surrounding neighborhoods. Okay, we have time for about one more question um, and we've got some great ones on here. Um, Let's, ha let's talk about friends groups, and maybe I'll, I'll um, since we haven't heard from Brian here in a minute, maybe I'll ask Brian to start out with this one. And, uh, you know, Commissioner Silver, you talked about this a lot in your talk last year, the importance of friends groups. You really talked a lot about how we need to think about parks in terms of care, not maintenance. And I think part of what, what I heard you saying was that friends groups are a great way to care for a park, not just maintain it. Um, Brian, what, what's uh, anything in terms of friends groups here in Cleveland um, caring for metro parks or public spaces? You know, what I can say is that, you know, again, the delineation to what, you know, Mitchell Silver is talking about is he's talking about a city centric park system. We're a metropolitan park district that serves, you know, 48 diverse communities across Cuyahoga County. We own land in the five surrounding counties. So, it's very different than your neighborhood park and the density that uh, Commissioner Silver is talking about. When I was in Milwaukee County, we had friends groups 
um, that really surrounded the 156 parks in the city of Milwaukee. And they were they were godsend, and they were also very challenging at times because most times they wanted they had memories of what the park looked like 30 and 40 years ago when the park's budget at the time was about 100 million dollars. And at the time that they were trying to regenerate some of these parks, the park's budget was down to $40 million, and they still wanted the $100 million type of atmosphere in the park. The demographics had changed. They had a splash pad. They had a pool. They had a rec center. They had a, a, a small little uh, track, a walking track. Metro Parks here is so different. You know, we have so many different volunteers between uh, the thousands of plus volunteers that volunteer at Cleveland Metro Parks, Zoo. We have over 4,500 volunteers and so many different community groups like KeyBank, Swagelock. We have so many different companies that give hours to the park. It's a very different um, dynamic um, than a friends group adopting a certain area and a certain set of um, logistics boundaries uh, because we are so spread out. I mean, from Detroit Avenue all the way to the towpass, it's 32-plus linear miles worth of park that spawn out into lots of different neighborhoods. So the, the, the types of... Um, friends that we have are, are really through our volunteers and our corporate support. Okay, great. Um, you know, we probably have like one minute left here. Is there, um, Kim or, or Mitchell, is there anything that your heart is beating to say, say one final thing before we wrap this up? I do want to underscore what you said uh, about uh, care versus maintenance. Maintenance is a checklist. Care comes from the heart. And so we're very, uh, very delighted that we have so many friends groups helping us out, particularly now during our budget cuts. First we had COVID, Black Lives Matter, and then we were hit with huge revenue shortfalls. People love their parks so much. We have over 600 friends groups coming out on weekends to help clean our parks, help with programming at a social distance. And so I'd have to say that they're invaluable partners in this effort and it's something I truly believe in. As I said during the speech last year, I have a 22-year-old daughter. I, when I raised her, I didn't maintain her. I cared for her. And it comes from a different part of the soul, and it's something we have to understand when we care for our parks. It's caring, not just maintenance. And if I could add to that, and if I could add to that, um, you know, just in the work that I do, my goal is to uh, help people, uh, people of color to realize their disconnect and then build, begin to build their relationship with nature um, and then appreciate it to the point where, where they become better stewards of the environment. It's, it's about that awareness, the relationship, and then stewardship because we're going we're gonna to recreate. And in doing so, that would be a great thing to do is to, to, because I don't know about uh, the, the number of that, uh, black friends group or brown friends group but it sure would be nice to be able to know that if we can, if we can all work together and make everyone feel well, welcome in these green spaces, we could create these diverse friends groups that will do nothing but, again, care, care and nurture these spaces that we love and we need. Awesome point to end on. I, I definitely want to join a friends group. I'm inspired here. Um, so I, I want to thank our panelists all so much. Um, this is, again, the, these hours are the fastest hours. Um, that's about all the time we have. Um, thank you so much for joining us for today's forum on the future of parks and public spaces. Again, we were joined today by Mitchell J. Silver. He's the commissioner of the New York City Department of Parks and Recreation. We had Kimberly Smith Woodford, the founder of Journey on Yonder, and Brian Zimmerman, who's the CEO of the Cleveland Metro Parks. We were also joined by Joe Byrne, I promised this at the top of the hour, who created a visual representation of today's conversation. We're gonna to flash to that right now. Um, okay, everyone can read that whole thing, right? In 10 seconds, <laughs> but don't worry, we'll find a way to post that somewhere. And if you'd like to join another conversation on this topic or keep talking about this topic, I wanna to encourage you to go to the website for Neighbor Up Cleveland they're gonna be hosting a really great series of breakout panels a week from today, Tuesday, September 29th at 5.30 p.m. And you can learn more about that on their website at neighborupclee.org slash public space. Special thanks to our community partners, the Black Environmental Leaders, the Cleveland Foundation, Land Studio, Neighborhood Connections, Philanthropy Ohio, and the Trust for Public Land. We really appreciate your support and partnership. City Club's virtual forums are sponsored by the Bank of America, the Cleveland Foundation, Eaton, 
uh, the George Gunn Foundation, the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District, and PNC, and the many, many generous members, sponsors, and donors listed on the website at cityclub.org slash thank you. You can join them in supporting their work when you make a contribution online or become a member at cityclub.org. I am Justin Glanville. This was a pleasure to host this forum today and an honor. Thank you for joining us. Our forum is now adjourned and I get to ring the gong again. Most important thing, okay. <laughs> Thank you, everyone. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC, the Chautauqua Institution, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.